Uh, one of the things that, um, that I've seen with people when they become Orthodox is that they get a lot of time and attention as they're becoming Orthodox. Classes, like weekly classes, and there are some expectations. And then you become Orthodox, and it's like, oh, I guess I'm done with class now. What do I, what do, I do now? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, so it's nice to have, it's going to be nice to have more opportunities for people to, who want to keep learning and discussing and things to, to do that. So um, I just turned on the recording and I'm talking about how uh, catechesis actually doesn't, it, catechesis doesn't end when you become an initiate into the church. And actually, I've, prob- I've told you guys before, but leading up to baptism in the early church, it would be up to three years of catechesis learning the basics of the faith, but not even being taught about the holy mysteries until after having been initiated into the church. And then your catechesis continues, talking about the inner life of the church. So, anyway. Um, I don't know if... I don't know if anyone is using the uh, the Zoom anymore because I think you t- you two were the only ones using it fairly regularly for a while. Um, in um, Kentucky. Kentucky, sorry. And one of them is here today. Wow. Agape. I don't know if you know her. Agape. Um, she's uh, she came here. She was in the Navy, and then she came here from San Diego. Okay, was here, but her family is in Kentucky, so she moved there to be with her family. But she has a residency program in town. But I'm going to log in just in case. But I don't think anyone's using online anymore. Which is kind of nice. Is there anyone there? No. Just me. Only one participant. Okay. So I think I'm going to drop it. Okay. Great. Are you out of here? God bless you and keep you. I'm glad you're able to come this morning. Bye, everybody. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's do our best to sing the Transfiguration Troparion or Apolitikion. I will lead, and I think I think I have it memorized. And you know what I encourage people to do? And I've been thinking, I need to set you up for success by, by creating like a page on our website that has the the main hymns, the way we sing it with the translation that we use, an audio recording and the words so that you could learn them because it's it's appropriate during a, a, a festal season to sing that hymn like before your meal or during your prayer time together before your meal, instead of the Lord's Prayer even, you would sing. 
when thou, O Christ, your God, was transfigured on the mountain. And, uh, you know, anyway, if you're crazy like me and you like things like that, you know, but it's good for families too, especially. Uh, so let's start with that prayer or that, that hymn. And I'll sing so loud that no one will know whether or not you are actually singing the words. Okay. When thou, o Christ, our God, was transfigured on the mountain, thou didst reveal thy glory to thy disciples in proportion as they could bear it. Let thine everlasting light also enlighten us sinners through the intercessions of the Theotokos. O thou be sober of light, glory to thee. Christ is in our midst. Did I ever tell you about the different endings, the little endings that we do with the hymns? So if we're singing a succession of hymns, that, that style of that hymn is Byzantine style. Byzantine music um, has, is two-part music. It, or it's called monophonic because it has one melody, one melody line, and then it has what's called an ison. An ison is like, When thou, O Christ our God, was transfigured on the mountain, thou didst reveal... You know, it's, it's a drone it's note. It's like the droning bass. The droning bass note. It kind of sets the foundation of it. And, uh, but the, main, the melody is, is the main sound. It's called monophonic, one like one sound, as opposed to polyphonic, um, which is like choral music, like four-part music, which we've, we've done in the past. If I can't sing um, multiple-part music by myself, so, but there's another setting that's like, when the Lord is and you have, you know, you have a soprano, alto, tenor, and bass singing together. And uh, so there are different styles of music that are done in the Orthodox you know, world in different traditions coming from different uh, cultures. The, the Byzantine chant is actually the original, although things change and evolve with time. Every time something is taught and learned, it's interpreted and tweaked. It evolves. Things evolve. And thus it is with the chant and the music in the church. Um, so the way we do Byzantine chant is what would we call like modern Byzantine, because we're using Western notation too. And in the original Byzantine chant, it, it has a different type of notation that has what are called microtones. So we have, we have like our piano scale, you know, and then we have whole steps and half steps if you've done any music. But they have like what would be like a three quarter step, you know, in some of their music. And it's notated and sung that way by people who have grown up hearing those. We don't know what that sounds like. Um, because we're used to the Western scale and the Western notation system. But anyway, before I go too far on that, when we sing, when we sing a hymn, a set of hymns, 
and you hear like the very, the choir is doing the very last one, like, like when we do um, right after the great entrance. Let's see if I have, if I have their worksheet. Did they have their worksheet from today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so today, we do the entrance, I say, wisdom, stand upright. They sing, come let us worship and fall down before Christ, O Son of God, who is transfigured on Mount Tabor, because they said, who is transfigured on Mount Tabor instead of who is risen from the dead, because, why? We're in the after feast. Some of the parishioners make fun of me because I, I say that all the time. I say, we celebrate, we celebrate holidays differently than people do in the Western world. They do all this preparation leading up pre, they do like pre-parties, you know, like before Christmas. We're having a Christmas party, you know, end of November, you know, sometime, you know, early December. And uh, you have all the cookies and you have the sweets and things. And then, and then there's Christmas and then you're done. Like, (laughs) that's it. Like clean up, you know, and we do the opposite. We spend that whole time in anticipation and actually fasting, you know, in preparation then we celebrate the feast and then we carry out the celebration until the next feast, until Theophany, with the, in the case of, of Nativity. And uh, it feels really healthy, actually. It's really lovely, although it's, it's backwards. And I think, actually, it makes sense because our culture is so, forgive me, I don't want to sound judgmental, but we're so proactive in seeking you know, satisfaction and we want, let's, you know, Let's start buying candy now and uh, eating it now. You know, does anyone want a Santo cookie? It's the day after Thanksgiving, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, the funny thing is we buy things when they go on sale after the holidays. (laughs) It's kind of funny, especially because our Pascha falls after Western Easter sometimes. And so all the baskets and everything are on sale. It's like 50% off. But that's not the reason we do it. It's just one of the benefits. One of the benefits. But when we do the entrance, we did, we did the for the Feast of Transfiguration, for Christ our God who is transfigured on Mount Tabor. And then, then the choir did the resurrection. When Mary stood at thy grave looking for the sacred body. Tone six. And we have an eight-tone cycle which I don't think we've got into in detail, and I won't do it today. But, but for every week, there's a particular tone for set hymns. And this week, is, we're in tone six. And then, so Sunday, day of the resurrection, we have the resurrectional apolitikion, and Mary stood at thy grave. Then, transfiguration. And now, O Christ our God, was transfigured on the mountain. And unless it's a feast day, we always do the apolitikion for the temple. And our, the patron of our temple is St. Paul. O first and throne of the apostles. So we sing that. And then after that comes the what's called the kentakion. And actually, traditionally, well, that's kind of funny to say because there are different traditions even within the Orthodox tradition. But originally maybe... The uh, the priest would sing 
the Cantachion. That's not the when thou wilt Christ our God, but it was thou wast transfigured on the mount in thy disciples. Anyway, um, that's the one I read during the homily. But, uh, but when they do the ending of that last hymn, they don't do glory to thee. They do glory to thee. Brings it to a resolve and it helps communicate to the clergy that they're done. And then, then I do. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for holy art thou, O God. Unto thee, unto thee we ascribe glory. You know, and so on. And I realize some of you guys, I mentioned it a while back, but some of you guys have never seen me serve with a deacon. Maybe once when Father Michael Habib came with his deacon. But he served, he served as the main celebrant. There was just a lot of people that day. And there, was a lot, and there were other priests, and, but... There is more of a, there's more of a, like a choreography, you know, a dance that happens between the priest. Before, before COVID hit, actually, I was serving with two deacons. And so they would ask my blessing, I'd give them the blessing, and they, they would go out and do the litanies and things. Okay. And so it's really cool because, um, kind of like when there are more altar servers, it makes it feel like, oh, it's not just the priest up there doing everything. You know, it's kind of a microcosm of you know, a representation of our community and a microcosm of heavenly worship, too, which isn't just Christ up there by himself liturgizing, but surrounded by the heavenly hosts. And so all those little you know, servers and they represent like the, the angels in heaven. That's why they wear their 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 robes. And uh, it's befitting for the, you know, the worship of the church. I've noticed that, like looking over, like the text of the divine liturgy, like half of half of what you do, like in the, in the text, will say, and then the deacons will say, yeah. Then, yeah. Starting with the great litany, I would say, blesses is the, is the kingdom. Actually, the, the deacon says, bless Father, so he initiates, and then I say, blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son. You know, now and ever and unto ages of ages, and then the deacon begins. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. And does like every time there's a litany, you know, series of, of supplications or intercessions we do. That would that's the deacon, and the deacon comes out and stands on the solea, which is like the little you know, the elevated area, and is kind of a link, a linking liturgical role between the people and the sanctuary. It's really beautiful. Um, so one of our deacons just he was already losing his mobility before COVID and then he ended up getting hurt and so he hasn't been able to serve and then our other deacon has been kind of coordinating things with the people downstairs and um, so but I'm always trying to discern who might have a calling to uh, you know that kind of service so yeah, not too bad, huh? He's so funny. We have these little tiny robes. They are so small. Yeah. So it was nice to see him up there serving. So um, anyway, that's kind of that's kind of a fun little Orthodox um, 
kind of practical. Um, if the choir, sometimes it's not written in the music, that da-da-da-da-da-da, but if the choir is aware of their experienced, I'll say, or the, you know, the director or whoever is is chanting, then they'll, they'll do that at the end of, of whatever set of, of hymns they're doing in Byzantine chant. But we don't always use the Byzantine style for... Can you go, can you go talk to mommy, please? Because I'm doing my class. Um, but uh, we do various... We're, we have a very pan-Orthodox feel. If you went to a Russian Orthodox church, you would hear things that sound familiar to what we do here at St. Paul. If you went to a, um, a Greek Orthodox church, you would hear some things that are similar to what you hear here at different times. And so, like, like Orthros before Divine Liturgy is mostly, it's like 95%, well today it was probably about 100% Byzantine chant, Byzantine style. But uh, it takes people who actually are willing to, it's kind of an investment. I was, I've been telling you guys, like when I was learning the tones, when I was a choir director, I was just at home. My wife was like, you never stop singing. You know, I was always working on hymns. I was always singing. I would always had things stuck in my head. And, and you would not have wanted to be in the car with me when I was alone, <laughs> practicing, you know, all the time. It's been interesting now that we can see the binders because you can actually see it says Greek or Russian or Romanian. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. We have Greek, Russian, Romanian, Serbian. You know. Cherubic hymn is a Gregorian chant, apparently. So. Uh huh. Uh, Or is it? Or is it Georgian? Because I I thought it was Gregorian. Oh yeah, we'll have to look. It's on number seven. Is it the? Is it the? Yes. Yeah, that's a Georgian one. And not sweet Georgia, but yeah. <laughs> the country Georgia. Is that just because of the community here, or is it is it an Antiochian style that is a hybrid of all of Great question. That is both, kind of. Um, because we're converts... And we have a Western ear, a lot of us here. And because Father James and Father David before him studied at St. Vladimir's Seminary, which is a, a Russian tradition um, seminary that had um, Russian music emphasis. That's what they learned and that's what we developed here. It's been going on here for like 30 years at St. Paul. The um, in the Antiochian tradition in the United States, what has happened is that generally for for vespers and orthros services and services like the Paraclesis, which we do in Byzantine chant. I don't know if you guys have heard that, some of you have, but uh, that's all a Byzantine style chanting service. Um, but those are all done. So vespers and orthros are done mostly with the Byzantine style. And they'll have chanters. They won't have a choir. They'll have like a, a couple chanters who do that. 
And they do a lot of solos too, rather than having a full choir. Because not everything is set to music, so they'll have text in front of them, and they'll know what, what tone or what mode they're supposed to sing it in, and then they will, they'll sing it however they interpret it, you know, in whatever mode or like a scale for us that they're in. And you can't do that with more than one person. You can have someone through the whole time while someone else is chanting whatever they want to. You know, you can't follow them. But you can have someone go, you know. So, um, But with, um, with the music, like the Kievan type of style that we do um, during our Vesper services, we have the text laid out, and I don't, I don't know if you guys have ever even seen it. We'll have a little block of text, but we have little underlines that show us when we move, when we do different things, so that you don't have to have the music right in front of you, but you can have a bunch of people singing the same music together, singing, or they're singing the same text. But it's simpler sounding than Byzantine. And Byzantine chant can be done very beautifully, but... Also, it can be a little disorienting sometimes for for us. I've noticed Kevin uh, it, it does it has it has more of a familiar Western. It does. I think that there was a lot of reforms in Russia in like the 17th century. That I know. I know they they uh, they reformed to be more like the Greek to like conform to the Greek model like the 17th century. And I also think there was a lot of, in Russia, there was a lot of cultural appropriation of European culture. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah, I know. They call it the Western captivity of Russia. Yeah. But I don't think it's all captivity. I mean, I don't think, I don't think polyphonic music is all terrible, sensual or something like that, as I've heard people say. Because I think, I I think singing together with four people, no one person has to have a particularly good voice if you can listen to one another and blend. Then you sing with one voice and it sounds really nice. Um, And I've heard, I mean, Byzantine chant and solos can be done kind of, you know, with, um, in a way that draws a real attention to the the chanter too. You know, we have to be careful of that kind of thing. Um, You could have a little, I call it, you know, have a little too much fun. You know, instead of when, you know, thou was transfigured on the mount. You know, you get that one guy who's doing the solo by himself and he goes, thou was transfigured on the mount. You know what I mean? And it's like, Whoa, you know, and and some of it's beautiful, but it can be dist- it can also be distracting too. So there's a balance to be to be found. Uh, so and I love Byzantine chant, by the yeah. way, personally. It's like the Russian style is like sweeter. It's sweeter and it's yeah, and it's simpler. Um, it's kind of more basic yeah. in a way, um, and it's accessible to a lot of us. It's easier to learn. Totally, rather than learning a you know a modal system that began with a different um, musical scale that's been interpreted into Western notation 
and then it has rules, but then the rules are flexible too. You know, it takes a long time to learn yeah. that. You almost need, if you want to have a real Byzantine music program, you need to have someone who who really studies it and teaches others how to do it. And uh, for us, like when I went, when I became a clergyman and I went and served the liturgy, I have kind of a big voice, you know, when I sing. And uh, I served in front of, with the bishop there and all the clergy and, um, and they liked the, the chanting that I was doing during the liturgy. And they were like, you need to learn Byzantine chant. Do you know Byzantine notation? And I was like, it's not practical in my community. Yeah. If I was the, you know, I'm the priest or the deacon and I, and I know Byzantine notation and chant, but no one else does, you know. Um, it's ancient. It's lovely. It can be done really well. But, but we also have to think what's practical for us and what's accessible. And I can tell you sometimes if people came in to our building and they heard... You know, chanting. Some people would be like, ooh, that's a little too out there for me. You know what I mean? And then there's also, there's what my, one of my friends calls white boy Byzantine. Forgive me. (laughs) And it's, it's when someone who is, you know, Caucasian or whatever, you know, an American, just an American speaker, all of a sudden, they start doing Byzantine chant, and now they have an accent. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like really weird. It's <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, so we have to. Those are things we need to be sensitive to, actually, because they can be distracting. They can be really distracting, and it's. But I've gone back and forth because, like, it's so it's typical in our archdiocese to have to have a Byzantine chant for Vespers. But if I said, okay, now we're doing that, guys, most, a lot of people who have been singing for years, would, they'd have a hard time adjusting to it, you know? And then it would be Father Jeremiah's thing. Like, I'd be down here, unless I got Wesley really excited about it, and then he was, you know what I mean? Or some someone or a couple people really working on it. But... Um, Anyway, for us, we haven't. But I have thought about doing like Wednesday night, Kevin Thursday night Byzantine chant. But then I'd have to have the right, at least a couple people mm-hmm. who are working on it so that it's not just all about me going back and forth all the time. You know? Because I think that can be. People like it when I come and sing with the choir sometimes, but it can be distracting too if the priest is bouncing around all the time. So, anyway, interesting things about chanting. So, it's not all just like totally, absolutely clean and inspired. You know, inspired. There's a lot of room for making good decisions. And when it comes to, oh, the liturgy though. So, in the Antiochian tradition in North America, what has become more typical is for there to be a full choir. For there to be, be a full choir that has a repertoire of music, like we do. And we might have, like we have, I don't know, eight or nine different versions of the, the uh, Trisagion, Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal. And, uh, and a bunch of different versions of the Cherubic Hymn, in the, what's called the Anaphora. And uh, so, anyway, 
that's a part of the that's a reflection of the cultural heritage the kind of the melting pot character of of the United States and uh, it's nice because then you're not just having the same you know two people singing everything as well and with choral music unless it's really fancy people a lot of people can sing along too we should almost everyone can sing along with holy god holy mighty holy immortal you know what i mean um it's an easy melody. It's kind of a playful sounding one, but um, it's easy to do, you know. And uh, anywhere I go, like if we start singing that at camp, at clergy seminars, at a church, an Antiochian church, it's actually so familiar to so many. You could pretty much go to any jurisdiction and they would probably know it. You know what I mean? So, um, anyway, some insights on those kinds of things. So, any other thoughts or questions? Yeah? So, I, I do like pulling from all the traditions. It yeah. It is. It's, yeah. I like to call it pan-Orthodox, you know, <laughs> because it does, it reflects the, uh, the universality of the Orthodox faith. And we don't have, we really don't have a, uh, a uniquely American expression of orthodoxy at this point in time. Because we're so young in the U.S. Even our country is so young, you know. So, um, I do too. Yeah, I appreciate that. There, I have a friend who's a, a monk. And now he's at the monastery on Bastion Island, but he was, he was in California. And he did, he did a recording... Of uh, by God bless you, I'll see ya. Uh, he did a recording of some of his own versions that were that he felt like were like American kind of versions, almost folk, like drawing from American folk traditions and applying them to Orthodox hymns. His name is Monk Martin, Father Martin Gardner. Um, he was at Saint John Monastery in Manton, California. He, the eyes of all look to thee with hope, I think is the name of the um, the recording. And it's good. Did you say he, he was like Appalachian? Was no, like so someone else did that one. Another one did that. Remember that? Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. Yeah, that was, I know his name. He's a choir director. Um, I think he's down in California, San Diego. Who did it? But there are there are little things like that popping up. But we have to make sure they're not corny. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they can be. Or like, what did you say? Cringy? Cringe? Yeah. You know what I mean? And some of it can be a little too a little too fun. There's a difference between fun and too fun. Yeah. And, I really uh, love that Appalachian melody. Yeah. It's just it's actually like yeah. As far as like growing in actually American Orthodox mm-hmm. identity, I think that's like that's going to be a part of it. Is like incorporating. Yeah. I 
I don't see that we're going to have a unique American tonal system. Mm-hmm. I just well, don't. Yeah, I don't system. think so. But I think I think we're going to start seeing hymns yeah. that that have a more American, you know, Western character. But they have to be. They have to be um, prayerful too. Yeah. They have to be, you know, sober and appropriate in a yeah. way. Um, doesn't mean they can't be joyful, but there has to be just a good a balance. Yeah, that's, how I, that's just like how I, I felt about that, that mm-hmm. melody, that, yeah. that appellation. To me. It, just, it just it fit mm-hmm. with the divine liturgy. It, like, yeah. it fits with everything else while maintaining, like, it, it is like American, but it also, like, mm-hmm. still feels like it fits in the church. Mm-hmm. With, yeah. It doesn't. It's not like compromising orthodoxy yeah, somehow, exactly. in order to to make it fit with our culture. Yeah. Which is something we don't want to do. We're not trying to do that. <laughs> We're not trying to conform Christianity to our American culture. Yeah. But we are trying to communicate it in a way that you know that makes sense to some extent to people, you know, without changing our, what it is that we believe. So, but there are ways, there are ways, there, there's room for creative expression. Yeah. There is, definitely. So, okay. I don't know, I don't know how far we're going to get on this chapter. And this one, this chapter in our book, I don't, do you guys want to share? You have one? Here you go. Oh, yeah, heaven and hell. That's right, I forgot about that. Um, did you guys read about it? Yeah. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like something he would say. Yeah. Um, it's a very different view of hell than the Western view of hell. Um I have a friend who's now a priest, and he said, he said it, it was the Orthodox view of hell that um, that converted him to Orthodoxy. He loved Christ, but he could not reconcile the idea of there there being a, an experience of the afterlife in which people are just subjected to the like the wrath of God for all of eternity, as if God were taking pleasure or somehow in punishing people, you know, for all of eternity, or subjecting them to. You know, endless tortures. Um, so, and we we don't, it's, we don't try to say, we don't try to speculate about what the eschaton, what the end, you know, what heaven and hell are going to look like. We always understand that there's there's a there's symbolism in the in the biblical language in anything we believe that there is a there is the potential for real separation from God, which is the worst. It's like it's like being dead without being able to die. You know, there are all these kind of paradoxes. And uh, and we believe in free will. So we absolutely believe we're not universalists. We believe that that people have the, have the freedom to accept or reject God. Absolutely and totally, you know. Um, Father Thomas Hopko tells this funny little story about the candy dish. Did I tell you about this? 
Andy Dish. You know, he used to. He was a great, um, a great uh, teacher, and he he came up with all kinds of ideas. You know, he would he would teach at camps, but he was also he was the dean of Saint Vladimir Seminary, and he said it's like this: a little kid says before dinner, "I want some candy," and the and his parents go, "No, you can't have any candy right now, but you can have some candy after dinner." No. I want candy now. You're going to spoil your dinner if you have candy now. You know, that classic interaction. You can't have candy. I want candy. Well, you're not having any candy. But you can have some after dinner. And then you have the dinner, and then, and then the candy bowl comes out, and people are passing it around, and then the little kid's like, I don't want candy now. You'll have candy. You can have candy now. We've had dinner. You can enjoy... No. <laughs> Rejecting what you can have because it's not on your terms. You know what I mean? And, and he says, that's another image of what hell is like. He said, all... He also says, hell is like... The idea is spending all of eternity getting what you want and not being able to do anything about it. Or what you think you want. And uh, so, um, but we don't, yeah, we, we don't believe in uh, this, this kind of Western juridical view um, of heaven and hell, but we believe that, um, that actually the experience of, of what would be pain or suffering would be, and we don't know actually what that would be, what it looks like, okay? We just know it's not nice to not be drawing near to the source of life for all of eternity. And actually, many saints suffered, suffered deeply over this idea that that people, that someone might reject God for all of eternity. They would weep for hours. And some of them were even tempted to pray for the devil have such compassion for someone who who would willfully reject God. So, um, but of course, as the, the lingo that Father James uses is the fire is the fire of God's love, which is light, which illuminates or softens like it softens wax and makes it malleable, can be formed by God rather than clay, which we think of the potter being able to mold the clay, but actually when it's exposed to heat, it hardens. It becomes impervious and unchanging. And that's where pride can lead us if we give ourselves over to it. That's what demon, de- demon possession can, can be too, you know, which we're not going to get into, you know, demonic possession t- today. But... Um, um, it's a it's a very different view, and actually, you know, a lot of people have rejected Christianity on this idea. Yeah. What a joke! Why would I want to believe, even if I believed that God forgives, you know, so forgiving and so loving, and that Jesus would be so selfless and all those kinds of things? But why would I believe in a God who would subject people to torment like that? Um, 
No, it's like we, we do it to ourselves. Um, and if we believe in free will, we have to believe that there that there is something that would be that we would call hell, but not because we would like to even use that word. To be honest, um, and like I said, it's a great. It's actually a great sorrow. One of my favorite quotations that I came upon, and you've probably heard me say it a couple times, so forgive me, but. A, a contemporary saint just simply said my children I do not want paradise without you and I think what if what if that's the way that we that we carried ourselves uh, to see to see every in every person you know someone who we would want to spend eternity with even the worst person because that would mean that they would be redeemed that's kind of what I was talking about this morning, too. To look at someone and not say, that person's hopeless. It's not over till it's over, you know. And I'm not the one to determine when it's over. Thank God. And if I play that game, then I'm totally deluded. And I've deceived myself into thinking that I know what only God can know. So the Orthodox Church has a real strong undergirding of humility when it comes to this kind of stuff. We're really excited about what we believe. We're really excited about what the church is. We get pumped up about beauty. You know what I mean? We, there's a lot, there's such a fullness there. But when it comes to casting judgment, unless it's on, in, unless it's as a result of an outbreak of heresy or something like that, in which, you know, inspire, God inspired, hopefully, humble church leaders who don't want to talk about draw attention to themselves. They have to stand up and and speak the truth. And then they want to go back into the little hovel and repent for the you know the next ten years in case they said something wrong. You know what I mean? God forbid I mislead even one of these little ones, you know. So um do you guys have any more questions about that? Pretty, it's actually pretty freeing, actually. To, it's hard to break free of the old view because it's shamed our, excuse me, shamed, shaped, <laughs> through shame. It's shaped our consciousness. And it's created that black and white that, we, that we've come to love. Saved, not saved. As long as I'm saved, I'm in the clear. Good. Ah, nothing else to worry about. And uh, that's not even human to really think that way, to forgive me. I mean, um, because that's not how we are. We change. It's relational. If I'm drawing near to you, we have a relationship. If I say I hate you and I never want to see you again and I walk away from you, we, we don't really have much of a relationship anymore unless we reconcile. That makes more sense in our relationship with God, rather than some kind of status update, saved. You know what I mean? Social media status update, saved. Are you saved? And uh, there's, a, there's a talk, I don't know if I sent it out to you guys, by Metropolitan Callistus Ware. He came to the United States, he came to SP, SPU, and he gave a talk on the orthodox view of salvation. 
And uh, he starts off with this really funny story. He's, he looks like, a, I mean, he's a monk. He's got his robe on, his cassock, and his jeweled cross and everything. He's riding on a bus in Oxford, I think. And someone comes up to him and says, are you saved? And then he, he uses that as the starting point for his, his lecture. And so if I can, if I can uh, remember, I told you last week I was going to send you some things that I didn't. I need reminders on these things. If anyone wants to take little notes. Um, but uh, yeah, you would, you would enjoy. If you haven't listened to him speak, to, he's entertaining to listen to him. He has this lilting, lilting British accent. <laughs> and then when he when he makes when he drives a point home, he he, he gets kind of like mm, you know about it. He's, he's fun to listen to. Um, and he for for the last generation at least, you know, he was really kind of like the spokesman for. Orthodoxy in the West. Yeah, in the English language. In the English language. Yeah. His, I mean, his two books are just like, those are basically just primers in yeah. Orthodoxy. Like, those are the two I read. When they were some of the first ones that were available. Yeah. And at least accessible to people. I mean, you know. Yeah, the Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Way. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's, it's worth at least hearing his voice if you haven't. You know, he's, uh, yeah. Don't listen to Before Bed, because he, like, he has, his voice, he has a really pleasant voice. It's really easy to just, like, fall asleep to. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, let's see what we can do on this chapter. I'm so... Oh, she is, okay. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. That's my son. Um, he still does it when he comes for communion every time. He, he uh, he'll receive holy communion and then he'll say, "I love you, Daddy." So it's really cute. This chapter is maybe one of my least favorite ones in the book because it's it's more of his person, kind of more of the author's personal opinions. So. I don't know how much I'm going to stay on the, the text um, or on the script. But, but there are some things that he says that I really like, like, like the first sentence. You know, living an Orthodox life in a secular world, and then the little subtitle is to be faithful Orthodox Christians, we must live according to the light that God has given us and share that light with the world. And uh, that's true. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Um, and he says, being an Orthodox Christian is the greatest privilege in the world. And I, I agree with that. I still can't believe it. And I've been, you know, Orthodox for about 15 years. And um, there's such a, f- a fullness. And it's, it's a never-ending adventure. And it's, it's hard, but I find a consolation in that. Because there's work to be done, you know. It's It's wonderful. Wonderful. And, uh, you know, your rocket, kind of you get a little rocket boost. It takes you up into 
the next area of the atmosphere and then you kind of float there for a while and then you get another little little boost, you know, with time. And, um, you know, and it's constantly humble. You know, some debris will hit your vessel and scare you a little bit and then you realize it's, you know, there's a little lesson to be learned. Or, but it's just, it's so wonderful. So we've been entrusted with the most beautiful treasure, truth, the truth about God, about the world, and about ourselves. We have the writings of the Holy Fathers and the counsels of grace-filled monks and nuns to guide us. We have the opportunity to stand before God, our Creator, and worship Him in spirit and in truth, receiving from Him the very life of the Holy Trinity, and to, you know, to be initiated into the life of the Trinity. Psalm 148 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is excellent, His glory is above earth and heaven. He also exalted the horde of His people, the praise of all His saints, even the children of Israel, a people near to Him. Praise ye the Lord. And, you know, you read just one line from the Psalms and it reminds you of being in church. Mm-hmm. Because we're constantly chanting, reading and using the Psalms. With great privilege, however, comes great responsibility. And that's absolutely true. Um, I think that's one reason why it's actually, it's harder to, it's harder to become orthodox because it's actually demanding. It is. Because you no longer have that saved, not saved situation. You have, wait a sec, like what I do really actually matters. And I have to take responsibility for that. And it's, but you know what it does. It affirms your God-given dignity. Because you're worth more than just being a check mark. On a, you know, in a box. Saved. Good. You know. Um, you're worth more than that. Your life really matters. The way you live and how you worship and draw near to God. And seek to be united to Him. So, yeah, unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required, says our Lord in Luke 12. So each of us will stand before the throne of God and give an account of our life, will be judged according to the light we've been given. And you know, each one will be, I won't be, we don't, we believe that I, I won't be judged according to what you did, or your, you know, your state, but according to mine. What I chose to do, what what I learned, what I knew, what challenges I faced, what sins I committed. Um, you know, um, holiness is is relative to the the person. Holiness for one person might, honestly, it might it might just mean um, for them in their own way, it might mean not harming another person. Because they've been raised in a rage-filled home. And that's what they were taught their whole life. To get your way, you hurt other people. For them to realize something breaks within them and they realize, I can't do that anymore. That's their struggle. That might be their path to holiness. And for others, it may be going above and beyond and living a life of total uh, service. And for another, it might be living a life of quietude and solitude. Let me read a story. 
I may not even just do this whole chapter. We'll see how we do. Um, there's, a, there's a story I want you to, re- to hear. I have not used it in a homily. Sometimes I take these stories from like the lives of the saints, and I, when I really like them, I'll insert them into a homily. But this one I haven't used yet. And it's a famous one. I have uh, Orthodox parables and stories. Here we go. This is a really important one for us to hear. You know, we don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. It's so much easier to look at other people. But um, it's so nice so nice to realize that I don't have to come to conclusions about every other every person I encounter I don't so let me read this to you I have 23 pages of stories and parables and things that I've collected and uh, I need more too the two girls who can judge by Abba Dorotheos of Gaza, who's one of my favorite writers, and he's one of the, the most known um, writers on the spiritual life. So it goes like this. I remember once hearing the following story. A slave ship put in at a certain port where there lived a holy virgin who was in earnest about her spiritual life. When she learned about the arrival of the ship, she was glad, for she wanted to buy a small serving maid for herself. And he lived this, he's telling this story in the 6th century. So people had servants. They had, this just, it wasn't a matter of course back at that time, in that time. She thought to herself, I will take her into my home and bring her up in my way of life so that she knows nothing of the evils of the world. Basically decided to save an orphan and uh, raise her up in, the, in a virtuous life, like a monastic kind of life. So she sent and inquired of the master of the ship and found that he had two small girls who he thought would suit her, whereupon she gladly paid the price and took one of the children into her house. The master of the ship went away. He had not gone very far when the leader of a dancing troupe met him. The man saw the other girl, paid the price, and took her away. So two two girls, one went to the home of this virtuous woman, and another went with this bohemian kind of dancing troupe, gypsies. So... This gypsy kind of guy paid the price and took the other girl away. Which of us could give any judgment about this case? St. Dorotheos asks us. The Holy Virgin took one of these little ones to bring up in the fear of God and instruct her in every good work, to teach her all that belongs to the monastic state and all the sweetness of the holy commandments of God. The other child was taken for a dancing troupe to be trained in the works of the devil. What effect would this have but the ruin of her soul? What can we say about this frightful judgment? Here were two little girls taken away from their parents by violence. Neither one knew where they came from. 
One is found in the hands of God and the other falls into the hands of the devil. Is, is it possible to say what God asks from one, he asks from the other? Surely not. Suppose they both fell into fornication or some other deadly sin. Is it possible that they both face the same judgment or that their fall is the same? How does it appear to the mind of God when one learns about the judgment and about the kingdom of God day and night while the other knows nothing of it, never hears anything good, but only everything shameful, everything diabolical? Can God allow them to be examined by the same standard? A man can know nothing about God's judgments. <laughs> A man can know nothing about God's judgments. He alone is the one who takes account of all and is able to judge the hearts of each one of us as he alone is our master. Uh-oh. We better stop playing games then, huh? There's another story. Should I read it? On this same... Since we're having fun here. We're having fun, but not too much fun. Um, I want to find it. I gave this one in a homily, but I don't know if any of you have heard it. I think it was before, um, before you guys came. It's called The Ascetic and the Thief. I'll read one more. Okay? Is that okay? You guys awake? Are my dulcet tones lulling you to sleep? <laughs> I was told a few weeks ago, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to work on it. When I'm giving my homily, I'm not always loud enough. You know? I'll go, da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da. And they're like, what was the da-da-da-da? <laughs> it must have been really important. So um, I'm going I'm I'm to try to work on that. And I apologize. If you ever miss the da-da-da-da, it'll be in the podcast that we do that has, you know, my 12 followers or however many there are. (laughs) So the ascetic and the thief. This is another one that just blows our judgments out of the water. And it doesn't mean, it does not mean that what we believe doesn't matter. It just means that judgment is God's. Um, Just like in that last story. Each one will be judged accordingly. I heard this from one of my from my father confessor actually, when we were doing a uh, a youth camp together, and he gave a little summary of this story, and I asked him for it, and he sent it to me. So it goes like this: There was an ascetic elder, you know, so like a, a monk who lived in the desert, who had been leading an ascetic life in a desert place for seventy years. Seventy years out in the desert by himself in fasting, chastity, and vigil. And do you guys know what we mean when we say vigil? Vigil means prayer by night. Staying up. Or staying up late. or get, you know, Usually it's staying up late to pray, but it can also mean getting up early in the middle of the night to pray. But vigil comes from the word, the word being um, the word vigilance, or being watchful. And um, 
it harkens back to that time when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, his disciples kept falling asleep. And he went back and he would wake them up and he'd say, keep watch and pray. You know, Can't you stay awake but one hour? And so we, it's, it's one way of fighting the passions and anticipating, like in a way, training ourselves to be ready for the Lord's return at any time. I may be really tired, but so what? You know what I mean? So there's a place for this. And in our own little way, we can... We can do a little version of it by even by just maybe turning off the show a little earlier than we would like to and reading a spiritual book or reading the Psalms or the Bible or saying some extra prayers on a one night, one evening of the week. Or when the, you know, the family's out of town or something, I'm going to take this me time to, to pray a little bit more or something like that. Or getting up a little early in our own little way. We can just do little things like that. But... So in, he spent his time in fasting, chastity, and vigil. Although he labored for God for so many years, he was never accounted worthy to receive a vision or a revelation from God. And he, obviously he was hoping that he would get some little bit of affirmation. Has this all of this time I've spent, this investment that I've made, has it resulted in anything? Maybe I did something wrong. Has this been totally meaningless? Am I just deluded? We all go there sometimes. Is this even real? All this stuff that I... You know, we get those little thoughts. So, he never had a vision. Thinking about this and bearing this in mind, he said, perhaps my ascesis, my spiritual struggle, is not pleasing to God for some reason. I do not know, and for some reason I do not know, and my work is unacceptable. And on account of this, I'm not able to receive a revelation or behold any mystery. Contemplating these things, the elder began to ask and supplicate God even more, praying, saying, Lord, if my ascesis is pleasing to you, and you accept my deeds, I, a sinner and unworthy one, ask of you to grant even unto me just a drop of your gifts that I may learn from the appearance of a mystery that you heard my prayer so that emboldened and enlightened I may live out my ascetical life. Like I said today, he's asking for a cookie. Just give me a little cookie, please. Or maybe half of one. I don't even care. It could be a little Russian tea cookie. (laughs) Not a huge chocolate chip. As the Holy Elder was praying and asking these things, he heard the voice of God say to him, If you desire to see my glory, go to the inner desert and mysteries will be revealed to you. When the Elder heard this, he went out of his cell and went far from there. A thief then came across him, who upon seeing the Abba, violently rushed at him, desiring to kill him. And when he caught him, he said to him, It's a good thing I ran into you, elder, so that I can finish my job and be saved. For we thieves have this custom and law and belief that he who commits 100 murders will surely go to paradise. So I, having labored hard, have murdered 99. And lacking one more, I have tried hard to finish my hundred and be saved. So I really owe you and thank you 
Because today I will delight in paradise because of you. And when the elder heard the thief say these things, he was beside himself and was afraid at this sudden and hopeless temptation. And turning the eyes of his mind toward God and reflecting on these things, he said, Is this your glory? Lord and Master, would you have promised to show me your servant? What counsel is this you have given me? To leave my cell and be informed by this dreadful mystery. With such gifts you pay the recompense for the excuses which I underwent for your sake. Now I truly know, Lord, that all the labor makes me want to cry. All the labor of my ascesis was in vain. And every one of my prayers before you was considered as abhorrent and a desecration. He's having a real pity party, but he really, you know, really felt that way. However, I thank you for your philanthropy, Lord, that as you know best, you chastise my unworthiness as is needed because of my uncountable sins and you have given me over to the hands of a thief and a murderer. Or he's resigned. Saying these things, the pitiful elder thirsted greatly and said to the thief, My child, since I am a sinner, God has given me over to you for you to kill me and for you to have your way as you've desired and I to be deprived of life as the evil man that I am. For this I ask you to do me a favor, a slight wish, and give me a little water to drink, and then cut my head off. When the thief had listened to the elder, willing to fulfill the elder's wish, he put his sword back into its sheath as he had been holding it out, and he pulled out a flask from his bosom and went to the river that was close by so as to fill it up, and take to the elder to drink. And there where he went to fill the flask, he gave up his soul and died. So when the time passed, a little time passed, and the thief did not come, the elder pondered and said, perhaps he was sleepy and fell asleep, and that's why he's so slow in returning, and I will be able to flee to my cell. Can you imagine what a... Roller coaster. <laughs> but seeing as I'm, an, I'm old, I'm afraid, since I don't have the strength to run. And as one week, I will become tired and he will catch up with me. Then I will anger him and he will want to torture me without pity, cutting me into pieces while still alive. Better I do not leave, but go to the river and see what he's doing. So the elder went, thinking about such things, and found him dead. And when he saw him, he marveled and was taken aback. And lifting his hands toward heaven, he said, Lord, who loves mankind, if you do not reveal to me this mystery, I will not lower my hands. Therefore, pity my toil and reveal this thing to me. I still don't know what in the world is going on here. (laughs) As the elder prayed these things, an angel of the Lord came to him and said to him, Do you see, Abba, this dead man who lies before you? For your sake he was taken by sudden death, 
so that you may escape and he not kill you. Therefore, bury him as one saved. For obeying you by returning his murderous sword to its sheath in order to bring you water to quench the flame of your thirst, he pacified the wrath of God and was accepted as a worker of obedience. And his divulgence of the 99 murderers was counted as confession. (laughs) Therefore, bury him and consider him among the saved. And by this, know the expanse of God's philanthropy. Philanthropy means love of men, love of people. We call God philanthropos, the lover of mankind. You hear that all the time in the hymns. Lover of mankind, philanthropos. So know the expanse of God's philanthropy and compassion. And rejoicing, go to your cell and be avid in your prayers. And do not feel sorrow and say that you are a sinner and deprived of revelation. For behold, God has revealed a mystery to you. And know this too, that all the toil of your ascesis is acceptable before God. For there is no toil that is done for God's sake that does not come before him. Having heard this, the elder buried the dead man. (sighs) It's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? It's really humbling because it doesn't fit our categories. Well, don't you guys believe that there's judgment? Yeah, we do. We believe in judgment. Makes it sound like you're, you know, anyone can be saved. No, not anyone. Anyone who wants to be. You know, not not on our terms. It's a pretty amazing story. Um. Okay. Oh, Reminded yeah. remind me. Is it does it say in the Gospels when Christ was speaking to the Pharisees? At some point, he says something like, "Prostitutes and thieves will surpass you in the kingdom of God." Yeah. It just that just reminded me. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't make sense to us, but it doesn't. It doesn't need to. But actually, it does. When, when you humble yourself, I I wish I could. I wish I could be an apologist for humility, and try to go around convincing people that they should just be humble. But doesn't you can't. It doesn't work that way. The only way that you can do that is by. Decreasing yourself. I must decrease and he must increase. I love St. John the Baptist. You know, I love him so much. And he's a good example. Um, so, you're right. I, I think that... Uh, you know, what he gets into is that we, we have responsibility. Basically, he says we have responsibility in the world to, to do well, to try to, to, to try to discern how we can contribute to society as Christians. We're not just like, we're not a, you know, a cult group of people who are just trying to do their own thing despite the world. Because we live in the world and we believe. My favorite, probably my favorite line from the Psalter, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. 
this ground that we that we stand on, this table that I'm touching in every molecule is is the the life and love of God, you know, the life that He's given, an expression of His creative compassion. And uh, so we don't despise the world. We long for its redemption, like I said in today's homily. Um, but the hard part for us is that we, we can't um, affect it on our own. We can't make it happen. But, but there is work to be done. But what work is there to be done? That's always the question. To, to each and every one of us is given something, some responsibility, one talent, five talents, ten. Who cares? Who cares? Like, the number is totally arbitrary. One person to love, ten people to love, a big family, a little family, a significant job, a job that where no one even knows what you do because you're title sounds so confusing. Who knows what, you know what I mean? There's all kinds of stuff like that. But each of us is given an opportunity to be who God created us to be. And the only way that we're going to to do that is by um, trying to be faithful to Him, you know, right here, right now. And there's something very, very challenging that happens when you start taking the spiritual life seriously. When you, when you sense that draw, that pull to, to pray more and to spend more time with God, to be more intentional, you, you're going you're gonna to fight against it a little bit because you like to relax and you like, but you're also, this, you realize this is, God is calling you because He wants you. He wants to be close to you, to be with you. And He wants to shape you. He's got the, he's the perfect physician and artist and parent. And he, he knows how to lead us, but will we be led? And we, the thing that's most challenging about this Christian life is that it is a real threat to our identity. Our false sense of identity. But it's totally amazing because we can become truly human. We can become who God created us to be. And it's not by juxtaposing ourselves to the world and comparing ourselves to others. It's actually by loving the world. And I'm not saying the world and its passions and its pleasures. But the world is created by as created by God. Um, And when you finally just resign to do that, whatever, God, I don't care anymore about measurements or quantities of things. I just want to be faithful. Um, Do with me as you will. You know, I could come to church and, you know, Three or five people could be here, and I could be in heaven, not thinking, where's the other 145 people or something, you know what I mean? 
I mean, I, of course, I want everyone together all the time. I mean, ideally, but, but, um, or I could show up and the president of the United States could walk in the room. And, but I'm standing before the king of glory. No earthly power. Is that impressive anymore? I would be respectful, of course, but, but you get the point I'm trying to make. Um, but as we seek God, if we take the scripture seriously and uh, seek nourishment and education from it and listen to the teachings of the church, I'm not saying you can, you're gonna, it's your job to digest every single hymn of every single service. You might walk out of a service with one word that's rattling around in your brain. Or one sentence. Same with my long homilies that you guys graciously endure. Sorry. Great. 27 minutes today, sorry. Not 6 to 10 minutes. Forgive me. But, and I don't expect you to remember everything, but there's something, there's something for you. There's something for you and you and you. And one, one thought that is for you in there. Um, to be honest, I mean, for example, I mean, as a priest, I'm not up there just to like entertain myself. You know, when I'm giving a homily, it's, I prayerfully, honestly, I, I worry, am I even going to have anything to, believe it or not, anything to say? Because what can I say? I don't know. I don't know anything other than I'd rather just read a patristic homily every time. But it's part of it is my job. My job is to convey something that's, you know, uniquely to you. And from me as an outgrowth of our life together in this community. I was really struggling with that last night. What am I going to say? And uh, thankfully it came together. (laughs) But um, but the idea is that, you know, there's something for you in the hymns, in the service, in the teaching, in the homily, in, in a reading of scripture. And kind of like when you're getting to know someone and you sit down and have, you know, an hour long conversation with them. You don't know everything about them and you don't remember everything you talked about. It takes years. Oh, yeah, I remember that story. I told you about that once before. Oh, yeah, sorry. You know what I mean? It takes time. Same with growing in your acquaintance with the scriptures and with the services of the church and drawing near to the, you know, entering into the mystery of knowing the lover of mankind, God. Then out of that comes a little measure of discernment. A little teeny tiny, I'm telling you, you have to be so humble. A teeny tiny measure of discernment. You're not going to just know it all and just and be this new prophet for orthodoxy or Christianity or conservatism or whatever. A t- teeny tiny, tiny bit of discernment that's going to demand something of you to change. I need to do something. You're probably not going to want to do it, you know. But you do it because you love God. And you do it because it's right. And you're seeking to be faithful. 
could be a little adjustment in your lifestyle, could be something in service of another person. But one little teeny tiny opportunity to discern and do something and act on it will lead to another one. If you trust God and if actually you believe that he, he implanted a conscience within you, it's a, it's a gift that God has given us. We Sometimes we, we, like, we would rather stand in the gray area between right and wrong. And there isn't always an absolute right and wrong. I mean, I've talked, joked with people a little bit, like when you get out of bed in the morning, should you take your first step with your right foot or your left foot? <gasps> you did? You didn't. It's Tuesday. You have to do your left foot. No, you know what I mean? What? Don't get caught up in weird psyching yourself out like that. But But God will... When it comes to certain things, we have to believe He's at work in our lives and He wants to guide us by the grace of the Holy Spirit and He wants to strengthen us by this life that we share with one another. We need to take each other seriously too in each other's spiritual life. We're responsible for each other in this little community of ours. And uh, I think that's what it's going to take in in the days to come too. And after we're, we're going to need the most precious holy mysteries that the church gives us. We're going to need to connect the dots between what we do here and what we do at home, making prayer a priority, and try not to compromise our faith, you know, too much. Um, especially with the upbringing of our children, this is a really, really hard one, really hard to discern. And we really need to ask God how how to raise our children. You know, we really have to. And and listen to that when he gives us that little tiny... I just got hit with one of those, like a wrecking ball, actually, this week. I won't tell you what it is. <laughs> Very kind of personal. But, you know, but something, you know, nothing like we do crazy, but some a change I need to make, you know. Um, and uh, And it happens. And if you take God seriously and if we take one another seriously, then... Um, we will will mature will actually mature um, and maturation results in not a not just a great sense of self satisfaction but um awe awe before God, the desire to suffer alongside other people to be compassionate and um greater even greater humility why me hmm? Like like we were saying, orth- orthodoxy, to be an orthodox Christian feels like the greatest gift. And why, I mean, was it you guys and I that we were talking about? I was having some conversations with someone recently. Like, wh- why, why me? You know, why did I find it? Not s- someone else in my family, you know? I don't know, it's an amazing gift, totally humbling. Um... But uh, the Lord has led us here. Um, so, now what? The life of prayer, reading the Holy Scriptures, loving one another, seeking opportunities to, to, um, to give without, without seeking anything in return. That's what love is. Love is, love is not always re- reciprocal. Ideally, it would be if 
if we were the people God created us to be. But for us to love the world is to love it without expecting anything in return from it. And actually to love it and maybe even say that our efforts have been totally disregarded or gone to waste. So what? God can do whatever he wants with whatever offering we provide. But the moment we, we let release it from our hands, we don't have to worry about if that guy I gave $3 to is getting a little thing of vodka instead of the cup of coffee he told me he wanted or something like that. You know what I mean? This isn't my money. This is your money. You know, someone, someone taught me once, you keep a few bucks in your pocket and that money doesn't belong to you. We might have talked about this, some of us. It's not my money. It's like, I'm going to run into someone and it's theirs. I found it for them. Three bucks, maybe, you know. I have a guy who works with, that I that I talk to a lot who works with the homeless, and he said three bucks is a good good thing to give someone. But give it to them and don't ask them what they're gonna do with it. Instead you say, Please pray for me, say a prayer for me. It totally humanizes them. Here's a little bit of money and you know to help you today. Say a prayer for me. My name is Father Jeremiah. What's your name? I'll pray for you too. So, um, okay, I'm looking through. It's, uh, it's two. It's two o'clock, isn't it? There's a Steinbeck quote I've always loved. It's, uh, it's better to give your money to. Uh, I, I had to paraphrase it, but it's something along the lines of better to give your money to a liar than to withhold money from someone who generally generally needs it. Mm. Uh huh. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, okay, the last thing I'll say, and I mean, you guys, if you listen to my homilies, you know, I I teach a lot in my homilies too. So, um, but um, but we have to understand that the seeds that we plant, um, and water in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, are the they're the things that are going to grow what we spend our time doing, what we invest in. So if it's, um, you know, various forms of media, news, whatever it may be, we need to actually strive to to be discerning in our our relationship with the world and not just be mere consumers of of it. Because you, you you really are what you eat. You know, what you bring into your body becomes integrated into who you are. Same with what you see and what you here and we see the beauty in secular you know art and entertainment at times but there are lines that are crossed that we shouldn't cross just for the sake of art and uh, that's something we each of us actually uniquely needs to strive to exercise discernment um, with regard to that's how we um, how we open uh, the gateway to our soul, through our eyes, through our ears, through our senses as well. So, okay, I'll stop there for today. That's a good place to stop. And we're going to, next week, you guys encouraged me, so we're going to do it. We're going to start a new text by um, Hiram Gregorios. It's a catechism book um, written by um, a monk from Mount Athos, and this one was written by, this guy's a, this Carlton is a philosopher um, and convert to orth- orthodoxy. 
And that, that vantage that he comes from shines through in his teaching a lot. Um, we'll see. I'd appreciate, you know, appreciate the feedback. And also um, on what you think of the approach and um, what works, too, what connects. And I've told you, Tatsuro, and others, too, though, if you're, if you're reading a book that speaks to you, especially as someone who's making your way into orthodoxy or learning more about the faith, um, if something is helpful to you, makes sense, like, oh, I appreciate the language or their approach, let, let me know, because I'm always looking for resources. I know what I like, but I've been at it for a while. And I remember there are certain books and things that I love now that didn't, didn't connect with me 10 years ago, you know. So, um, okay, let's stop with that. We'll say a little prayer. We'll end with our... We'll end with our prayer. And I'll let you guys go. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Christ, our God, who at all times and in every hour in heaven and on earth art worshipped and glorified, who art long-suffering, merciful, and compassionate, who lovest the just and showest mercy upon the sinner, who callest all the salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour receive our supplications and direct our lives according to thy commandments. Sanctify our souls, hallow our bodies, correct our thoughts, cleanse our minds, deliver us from all tribulation, evil, and distress. Encompass us with thy holy angels that, guided and guarded by them, we may attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay. God bless you all. Go in peace. Thank you.